0: This is Erica Licht with the Initiative for Institutional Anti-Racism and Accountability here at the Kennedy School, sponsored by the Shorenstein Center. And I'm joined by two of the core trainers with the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, Adis Castillo and Justin Freitas. And they had joined us for our inaugural convening Truth and Transformation yesterday, October 16th. We're now here October 17th at the Kennedy School. And I have the opportunity to speak with both of them today about their work and organizing and perspectives from the convening. So thank you for being here.
1: Thank Thank you you for inviting us.
0: So I think just to kick us off, um, you know, in in the perspective of anti-racist practice and organizing, I'm really curious, how did you both? Um, get organized into organizing or how did you begin your organizing what is the history or connection been for you with your family or the community whatever wherever you call your community um, what is that kind of history or um, trajectory looked like for you
1: maybe we do some people h- institute <laughs> history and then we can talk about
0: sure. how we got <laughs> <connected> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. that sounds great yeah so
1: you just Chime in when I'm missing something. No problem. I but for you. folks that don't know, uh, People's Institute has been around uh, formally doing training since 1980. So we're going to be celebrating our 40th year anniversary in 2020, uh, which is incredible. We were talking about that yesterday. I mean, we haven't been around for the 40 years. Mm-hmm. We're we're not that old, but we've been eldered and mentored into the process and. It is a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multicultural group of anti-racist community organizers around the country. And I think that piece is critical because institutions know how to make themselves multi-ethnic and multiracial. racial um, They usually are all using the dominant culture's tools and when they do so, and very few of them call themselves anti-racist. Um, so I think that's why it was so powerful for us to even get the invitation and to know that there was some major organizing that happened yesterday to even make that conference happen with anti-racist in the title. Right. Mm. Um, and just for 40 years, thinking about the vision of Ron, I didn't get to meet Dr. Jim Dunn. I heard a lot of stories, but that I don't know of any other, like maybe there was others and I'll be correct. I'm sure there are, but multiracial anti-racist groups that have stayed together for that long. Like not just a multiracial team working on a nonprofit, not a multiracial, a multiracial team with an explicit vision and mission of doing anti-racist work Mm -hmm. where their relationships haven't fractured. Doesn't mean we're perfect by any means. Uh, We have all our internal stuff and growing pains. Um, But So they started in 1980 after going through community organizing trainings around the country. And I think sometimes what's lost, I was with Ron last week doing a training in Baltimore. He got a lot from those trainings. Sometimes people kind of poo-poo on those trainings, but he learned major skills and tools going to Saul Alinsky's training, Midwest Academy, all these different things. But him and Ron, uh, Jim got to meet each other going to these events. Ron coming from New Orleans, Jim coming from Yellow Springs, Ohio, and Antioch College teaching over there. And uh, they were clear that in every one of them, they knew how to build a base, knock on doors, run a campaign, like skills and tools, but then they'd go back to their separate communities and none of those skills and toolkit was working that well um, because nothing was being addressed in those trainings it was very tactical and skillful and you need skills and tools but Ron infamously we all say as trainers now Ron says if you give people skills and tools but they haven't dealt with their racism you're kind of just training and making more skillful racists in this society
2: Mm -hmm. right Right. so
1: because this society has trained us in a way to think that the opposite of racist is non-racist mm-hmm. instead of anti-racist mm-hmm. right? right um so they created a process which they wanted to be 2 weeks 10 days like for folks really building relationships together that would address race history and culture take the same organizing tools and i think that's one of the things maybe we'll get into a little bit later is that folks are coming to organizing 101 or uh, coming to undoing racism trainings now in 2019 Maybe without some of the framework and foundation of organizing 101. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're getting this first. Ron and jim had the organizing 101. There were so many people that came out of civil rights movement they were working with had organizing 101 tactics. and then the, this just gave the extra layer to make it more humanistic mm-hmm. and to make the relationships last. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit about kind of how we were founded and we've been doing trainings for 40 years since, mm-hmm. and uh, only one main office in New Orleans of where there's a physical building. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, hey, we just have collectives, organizing collectives all over the country, and most of them don't have buildings, maybe one or two spots, you know, rent a little space or do whatever, but it's really just organizing collectives yeah. of people coming together, trying to practice the anti-racist principles they use. Some of them doing that uh, just in community and organizing locally, and some of that being that inside outside work doing taking those same principles in institutions and trying to be gatekeepers in those institutions that follow the lead from community
0: yeah
1: what am i missing at us
0: <coughs> I was gonna, well, can I just say they met at the God Box, right? And yeah. I don't know if yeah. I told you. I used to work in the God Box yeah. in New York, yeah, uh, on Riverside Drive. Okay. So once I so you you found out about that history, yeah, yeah, the 14th floor or something overlooking, yeah. okay, you can see the river from there. Yeah. But it's a powerful space and still has. It was interdenominational. Of, they
1: used yes, to give a lot yes. of seed money in the 70s and 80s. You yes. know, mm-hmm. people would go there. Yeah.
2: I would also add to what you were saying that this was a, just not a training that was created by mm-hmm. Dr. Dunn and Ron, um, Dr. Jim and Dunn. I mean, Dr. Dunn and, and Ron, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was also taking into account all the other people who contributed. Yeah. And I think it's even more exciting at the fact that some of these contributors are still working and working with us, right? Like you have Dr. Michael Washington, you have Mm. Barbara Majors, you you still have David Billings and Marjorie Mm. Fink. Like we have a cadre of elders that are still with us yes, Diana who,
1: Dunn and Kimberly Richards who is now our, ex- our executive, executive
2: director, director. Mm-hmm. you know <clears throat> folks that have been contributing so this wasn't just like the brainchild of two African American men this was they may have been leading the process but this was a multi racial multicultural effort to actually create this training and it's been perfected over the 40 years to the point where it's almost like second nature for us right like we don't all train at the same time we don't all come into the process at the same time But we all have the understanding and the language. And then we continue to build on that with each other. And this work isn't just about the adults. Um, From the People's Institute, this also grew the People's Institute's youth agenda. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this work is intergenerational. So we have separate work that happens with young people across the country. This past summer, they had their second annual um, youth summit where we brought in over 100 students from all over the country to do the anti-racist work together, which is very powerful. So it's, this is a growing movement, and we have young people that are not just soldiers but are also trainers that are facilitators that get this analysis, and then it changes their lives. So there's just so much mm-hmm. going on with this work that is bigger than just the training. The mm-hmm. training is just what people know us for, but really is the movement that mm-hmm. we're building that mm-hmm. it really gets kind of like um it almost feels like we don't talk about that enough because it's not under the people's institute's name but a lot of that work has grown from the people's institute's work
0: yeah yeah and it's beautiful the yeah just the collective the the as you said like you don't have the brick and mortar office to have like the people um the people resources people in communication people in the collective people um just continuing the movement forward I think what you've described as like a as movement building mm-hmm.
1: well uh, yeah. and I, I got connected to them in 2005 my last couple of years at springfield college in western mass mm-hmm. <clears throat> and we had people coming all the way up from because that was katrina so when you talk about folks that um folks were coming all the way up to springfield massachusetts looking for refuge from katrina mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. uh that is one of the things that that Ron speaks often about. And we really don't even have numbers to know how many people we've trained because our records in our office, the one building we do have in New Orleans was wiped out in Katrina. So we kind of don't know all our numbers pre 2005. So, and then I think the original elders from what I've heard from them saying is everyone was around the country wondering what the hell are we done now? Like, but that spoke to The principle of networking building a net that works that the work just kept happening because even while they couldn't be at home in new orleans people were organizing trainings in their own community around the country and doing their own they were part of campaigns and they we understand the training to be a base building for the for people to be clear so that we work better on campaigns in our own local region so the work just kept happening everywhere and that was like a testament to the relationships that had been built i mean how many places could get you know their office wiped out like And be a historically Black, you know, organization and an organization of color of all, you know, people like don't have that generational wealth to, oh, we'll just reopen again. You know, like, you know, like that was human, you know, networking that that kept even the People's Institute going post-Katrina. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Do you all want to speak a bit to your personal kind of experience of community or connection to organizing, or also just how the principles have kind of impacted the the way in which you think about your organizing?
2: Sure. Um, so I came into the organizing work not knowing I was an organizer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I got it like, damn, I, yeah, I am an organizer. It's kind of like mm-hmm. that question we have. Anybody yeah. here an organizer? Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, I'm not. Yeah. And then when you think about it, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I've been an organizer for a while. Um, So I've been a service provider most of my life. I've worked in the nonprofit and uh, state government work, um, and even foundation work for a little bit. And um, it wasn't until I went to the workshop in September of 2016, um, there was a group called Just Moves um, in New Haven, Connecticut which was a collective of artists and organizers from New Haven who had gone through the training. Mm -hmm. Specifically, they went through the Urban Bush Women's Summer Leadership Mm -hmm. Institute, which has embedded the Undoing Racism workshop as part of the institute, right? So they went through it and their goal was to bring uh, uh, more of diversity and dance therapy into clinical work at um, the Connecticut Mental Health Center. And when they brought in the urban Bush women, they got told, you know, you you guys really need to do the Undoing Racism workshop. So a whole group of folks went and they were so inspired by the work that they wanted to do more work in New Haven. So I got the call specifically because um, that group wanted to host a workshop for young people. Mm -hmm. And as the executive director of the Citywide Youth Coalition, my job is to know who are the providers, who are the young people, and how to get them all in the room. So I was actually helping to organize the workshop, not having been through the workshop. Mm And I'm just sitting up here and we, it took us three to four months to actually completely organize that workshop down to the food, location, curate the room, who we had in there. And I'm just, you know, lollygagging, being a part of it, having conversations with Kim on the phone, not knowing what's going on. And then I finally go to the workshop in September and it was like a holy shit moment. Like I had no idea that I wasn't crazy, that all the stuff that I had actually gone through wasn't all in my head. And it kind of made every, everything officially made sense. So I was trying to organize folks in the community to go beyond just coordinating services or getting together just to apply for funding. And now I go to this workshop and I recognize that all this time, we've been thinking that the way to make people better is to fix People, mm-hmm. when the reality is that it doesn't matter what we're trying to fix, it don't matter what program you have, mm-hmm. if you're still dealing with the same system. Mm-hmm. So it's al- almost like um, in New Haven, we have we're saturated with nonprofits, and everyone wants to teach young people how to fish, but then they send them to a pond that has no fish in it, and that's the organizing work. But how do we build the pond? How, matter of fact, how do we organize to get a bus to take us to the Long Island Sound mm-hmm. in order to start fishing? We can't just keep Thinking that we're going to be building skills of young people or people in general and not changing the actual terrain of the landscape in the city to make things better for folks. Mm -hmm. So once I went through the workshop, it was like the aha moment I needed. I couldn't get people to move or to even organize for their liberation because they didn't know that we're in bondage. Mm -hmm. I didn't know I was in bondage until Mm -hmm. that moment. I thought I was liberated in that moment, too. Mm -hmm. And then I realized I'm not at all. So what has inspired my work from that point on in September has been very, being very clear of what this analysis is. What brought me to organize in the first place is the fact that I'm raising Black boys. I worked in a correctional facility. I was the CO, and I remember how much I hated that work. And the only thing I could think of while I was there was that I don't wanna be here to usher more children into these facilities. Mm-hmm. But never did I realize or know that in order to dismantle that system, I needed to have an mm-hmm. understanding of the race analysis. I knew what I was seeing in the jail, but I didn't have the language or the understanding or the history of the organizing in order to make it to us begin to undo it. So for me, even when I think about the principles of um, the anti-racist organizing principle, there's three that resonate most for me. One is learning from history. We don't know our history. We're doomed to repeat it. Right. Mm -hmm. Two, developing leadership. I don't do this work alone. And it's critical that I bring as many people with me and I teach them to lead to, because the movement can't stop when I'm not available. Mm -hmm. And three, understanding and healing and undoing the internalized racial oppression. Because for me, it shows up. I think for all of us, it shows up in everything. Anytime that I'm triggered, I have Mm -hmm. a, anytime I feel some kind of way about another person, especially if it's a person of color, I have to go back into my cave and go, what is being triggered here? What's Mm -hmm. really going on? Mm -hmm. So those three are the principles that I carry on my backpack. Like Mm -hmm. I I would probably tattoo them on the side of my arm Mm -hmm. to constantly be reminded when I'm doing the work, Mm -hmm. to always be mindful of the history, to be mindful of developing other people and to be mindful of how I'm showing up in space and how my own internalized oppression is manifesting in my relationships with others. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah.
0: The fixing (laughs) that emphasis on fixing people versus fixing the system. I think is that's the nonprofit industrial complex. I mean, think about it. We're at the
2: Kennedy School of Government, right? And I thought it was interesting yesterday to hear, we were just talking about how I was blown away by thinking, you know, that wow, you know, Harvard has an actual program for public policy and public administration. And yet to hear from other students Mm -hmm. that it was one of the most oppressive places Mm -hmm. on campus. But then I look at it it as government. And what is more oppressive and more bound into a box than government?
1: Yeah. Well, it's just anywhere in this country, too. We're not, like, we're not surprised, but then our socialization is so deep that we still, we still text in an email and our parents, hey, well, I'm speaking at Harvard yeah. tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Like, to get here and then to hear has- a morning <laughs> reckoning from all the pain that Harvard has caused some people. But, right. that, but also right. that it's not unique. That That's the perspective we get in doing the the training all around the country mm-hmm. is everyone thinks their institution is the worst, their city's the worst there. And it's like, this is a pattern of racism around the country. Mm-hmm. But I could just say for me, my connection to the work came in student organizing. Uh, it, actually, it's just a, a full circle time for my life right now, actually being in Massachusetts right now, I went to undergrad in Springfield, Massachusetts. I probably, it was, um, Springfield college is like the, uh, it's like the Harvard of, um, sports and athletics. So 97% of people do intramurals there. It's where the YMCA was founded. It's where basketball was founded. 15 minutes down the block in Holyoke is where volleyball was You're It literally issued gym clothes the first day of school there. You have to take mandatory health and wellness classes. Um, So for me, that was probably just some leftover, you know, boyish athlete stuff still playing. And so I got connected to the Institute. I, I really feel like I went to that school to meet two people one was because uh, I grew up in East Providence, Rhode Island, which is, you know, Rhode Island, it's a beautiful place to live. And we just moved back to Providence, but it's a state kind of almost with a town mentality. Sometimes I literally went to a high school and I love it, but that our mascot was the townies, like, like with said, with pride, like in a so, and there is some good pride in that. And there's, we got to get out of, we got to have some perspective and move out of, you know, our own community, like in, in different ways. And I think of, Maria Reyna, one of our, um, mm-hmm. Pumarejo, one of our trainers in uh, in Puerto Rico, uh, who says developmentally, everybody needs to leave home at some point, even if it's not that far. Right. Just to be right. But it's whiteness that tells you not to go back.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like
1: it's what well, every other group because of their collective mm-hmm. cooperation together, you're supposed to achieve so you can bring back and cheer. Mm-hmm. you know, whereas whiteness is on a linear pattern of you. You measure your success by how farther away you came from one point to another. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I don't go home to visit my family. They're all too racist and this, that. You know, like, right. that, well, you know, so my connection to the Institute came a lot from growing up in a Portuguese community, being very ethnically held, even though uh, I was very Americanized. I say my grandmother was, my vavá in Portuguese, she was Portuguese. And then my dad and my, my aunties were Portuguese American and then I'm the American Portuguese. And Mm. so the language stops getting passed along Mm. thing, but I was still enough in a region where that could be held because so many people did speak Portuguese. So many of my friends, my teammates on the soccer field went back to the Azores uh, every Mm. every summer and things like that. Mm. Um, So I was uh, in some way culturally held, which attracted me to the work when I did meet the Institute. So I went to Springfield College and I feel like I paid to meet two people there. One was a priest who actually was one of my dear mentors Uh, who just passed away last spring, and we're going to be doing a memorial for him next Saturday Mm. on campus. Uh, Mm. And he was like, he just was amazing. And he knew the pain on campus. So he had this this knack for just working with men and all these folks who are doing sports and intramurals and thinking they're on their last leg of trying to be professional in football and wrestling and all the things, Mm. and just getting them to talk about their feelings and cry. Like he's mm-hmm. like this, like he's seen him party and drink too much on weekends and, and just not sharing their feelings. So that was kind of like the emotional, like stuff that development that I needed. And in the classroom, I took disability studies mm-hmm. with the teacher, Allison Cumming McCann, who was a white woman who had taken this training in the early nineties. So she brought her family through this training mm-hmm. and I didn't even know if I wanted to take disability studies, but I wanted to keep taking her classes because Mm. she brought some humanity into the space. Mm. She would say, I'm bringing in cultural sharing into our class from the People's Incident, like, and we would culture share, like, Mm. and I was like, wow, this is not happening in any of my other classes. So she was clear no matter, while we were looking at disability, she was always bringing in kind of race and gender into it. Mm. And similarly, when I went to social work school, disability studies there was like, you're gonna be one of two to three men in the class. So you better be able to speak to these different identities. Mm. So by my senior year, I got connected. I had been doing some, I I wouldn't say so much activism, but some things in relationship to it. I had a lot of internships in that, which connected me to community-based organizations. So I knew what was going on Mm. in pantries and housing and different things that were going on because so much of my school and undergrad ended up being internship. Mm. But then I had friends doing activism and then I was supporting who were doing stuff around sexism, around disabilities, clothesline projects, you know, Vaginama, all that stuff, mm-hmm. right? And what I started to notice really quickly, whether it was in the disabilities class, whether we were working on sexism, whatever it was, was that white women were benefiting when we were doing stuff around sexism. White people with disabilities were benefiting mm-hmm. all the time. White, whatever, if we were doing LGBTs, white queer folks were benefiting mm-hmm. more than anybody else.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So when I finally connected with the Institute, um, yeah it was just it was just that click like you're saying Addis, of like okay in a race constructed country yeah you know it's not that race is more important more oppressive than it but like ra you know i the way we'd say it now you know or at least that, that i say is like we're going to be able to work more effectively for collective liberation of every oppression mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. when
1: we understand yeah. race in a country that was founded on race it's like when people are you know, like why are you gonna make everything about race? Like mm-hmm. you hear folks that say that this is literally a country that made everything about race by yeah, law. Yeah. Like and we have the nerve like yeah to say like why are you gonna make everything about race? Like we did literally yeah, by literally. law in this country. Yeah. You know, so we didn't make it by gender. there were there was gender discrimination, there was massag misogy- like and all of that needs to be unpacked. But white women were still given their worth mm-hmm. in the in, in the human family in this country. Mm-hmm. So seeing so those are the those are the two influences that I had. So by the time I went to a community meeting that Annie Rodriguez and Maria Reina and other folks from Urock in Massachusetts, my senior year was like first or second semester of senior year. I was like, I don't know what this is, but this is clicking. This is making sense. Mm-hmm. The community work they were doing in Western Mass. And then my mentor, Leo, Father Leo was just like, you know, if you don't go to grad school right away, like school is not so much your thing as as much as experiential, just mm-hmm. go get it done right away. And I went to Fordham and and New York had a bigger presence of the People's Institute and social work schools. So I started mm-hmm. to just connect with them all the mm-hmm. time. So I was with David Billings and Marjorie and they were kind of my pseudo parents while I lived in the Bronx and, and, and went to school there. So I was lucky that mm-hmm. I, we crossed over at the same time there.
2: So you didn't start facilitating until when?
1: Um, I probably met the Institute in 2005 and then, you know, was in not a, Organizing circles and probably f- started facilitating in 2010.
2: Wow,
1: okay. Or 11, 2010, yeah.
0: I hope it's okay if I share this, Justin, but I know when you all were moving back to Providence, yeah. mm-hmm. um, you posted, well, no, I don't think you even posted, someone mentioned it in the People's Institute listserv, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden there was just like this outpouring of love and people mm-hmm. like who had mentored you or trained with you or been with you like people just both like from the New York community, New York, New Jersey community, just like kind of sending you all and your partner and your children on your way, but like with love and like also saying like your, your like your physical lack of presence will be missed. And also just as you mentioned, like that, that return home and like the significance of that both for like family, but also for, um, you know, just the kind of like full circle, Uh, that's the full circle thing because
1: developmentally that's what ron has been telling all of us as white people go back home Mm. like most of my message in terms of talking with white people is to do our work with our own families Mm -hmm. like because we can always gain more skills and tools but right now like my goal is planning family meals which is hard uh, once a week you know Mm. and and just actually actively being in their life so the conversation isn't race all the time they trust that the relationship is there the other 364 days a year, but yeah. it's also like now, what do I get to say? Okay, it wasn't perfect when I was young, but that held me and that was important. And now I can include that with this new information that I have from Antara. So I'm taking Portuguese classes. Mm-hmm. I'm around the community that really held me, mm-hmm. uh, but didn't have this analysis. So now, yeah. how do I share it given their culture and language? Like, yeah. because they did do something for me, and I don't want to throw them away either. But. You
2: know what's funny? So I, um, so just this year I started, um, I went back to dancing and I started dancing with a bomba troupe in New Haven. Mm -hmm. And for me, that has been an IRO experience for me. It's all, it's been all about unpacking my stuff specifically because, um, as a Afro Latina, I present as a black woman. Mm -hmm. So like my experience with racism always came first from my own community before it was, with any white folks. It was always people who I grew up with who would look at me as the other because I didn't look like the typical Latina. So to me, for me to be in a space practicing an actual African tradition from Puerto Rico and the space is predominantly white because most of the players and the dancers that are there now are very fair skinned, white presenting Latinos. I actually go specifically forcing myself to stay in that space to reclaim my space. Like, mm-hmm. no, this is my culture. Mm-hmm. I deserve to be here. Right. Um, and they're not used to having me in this space, and they're going to get used to me being mm-hmm. here too. So like recognizing that constantly when I'm in that space, that uncomfortable I am mm-hmm. to be with, within my own culture, because I always felt kind of marginalized, even mm-hmm. in that space. But th- that's this is the work of anti-racism, mm-hmm. constantly. I still go there. Mm-hmm. I go there representing as my full self. I don't hold any of that back. And it's been, I think it's kind of like, it's been very spiritual for me at this mm-hmm. point where every time I go a little bit of my, my, I get more of my humanity back. And at the same time, my um, other colleagues in the troop also get part of their humanity back. Because mm-hmm. I start seeing them as more than their skin tone. I start being connected with them through the music, through the culture, through the heritage, through the history. Mm -hmm. But none of that would have happened had I not gone through Mm -hmm. this process, had I not had an understanding Mm -hmm. of how this was playing out for me. If I didn't have this language, I just would be like, I don't want to be in that space and I don't know why. Mm -hmm. But now that I have the language, I'm very clear. And then I force myself just, I go to my growing edge even that much more. Mm -hmm. So like, I totally feel what you're saying because I'm experiencing that right now as I'm trying to really gain a sense of my history and be in community and relationship with other people who share my heritage Mm
0: -hmm. and when you're talking about that return to humanity or not even return just that um the humanizing process of anti-racist organizing and work Mm -hmm. both Mm -hmm. personally and in collective and i think for me personally as a white person going through the workshop it's been an experience of well of humanizing of humanizing my own My own experience, my own internalized um, racial superiority, Mm -hmm. how white supremacy manifests within me personally, within my work, within the work I'm trying to do on Mm anti-racist practice. Um, And I think just that humanizing piece that you've named is uh, that you've both named is really critical. Mm -hmm. And I think I don't know if it was one or both of you talking about when race gets left off the table. I think it was actually you, Justin, like in I mean, that's. And like a lot of nonprofit work and a lot of quote-unquote activist work or organizing work particularly around um sec- you mentioned a number of forms of you know marginalization which or, need to be yeah right? which are all valid right experiences of oppression and you know without that both intersection of race you know like kimberly crenshaw's like mm-hmm. work let alone just a, a return to a foundation of the country of like first contact with indigenous folks being about right. race, being about genocide, being mm-hmm. about theft, being about yeah. trauma, mm-hmm. violence. Uh, and with that being said, I think I'd love for you both to speak to kind of the arc or the trajectory of the two-day workshop and how it was conceived, you know, in the history of, um, you know, Jim Dunn and Ron Chism, as well as, you know, the analysis piece because, you know, people and you both initially and then myself go through this process and you've because you've trained a lot of people Mm -hmm. have Mm -hmm. seen this process unfold a lot of times yeah so not to say that each experience that there's like you know something across all of them but Mm -hmm. i'm interested in like what that's like what unfolds over those two days in that room with those people and sometimes it's people who all work at the same organization or youth who are maybe all part of the same group Mm -hmm. but often maybe it's just an an open call for whoever, yeah. you know, wants or needs to be in the room. So I'm I'm just interested to hear having seen those spaces that that really powerful I shouldn't say two days, I guess it's technically two and a half or mm-hmm. whatever the arrangement is. But <laughs> whatever the arrangement is,
2: that <laughs> day. Yeah, but at least two days. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well yeah, what what's that been like? So day
2: one is a little nerve wracking. Because people don't know what to assume or what's going to happen, and day one really becomes a day where we are setting the tone and building relationships. In fact, I think people get so <laughs> upset when we're not—they don't get an agenda, mm. they don't get the breakdown of everything we're doing when we're doing it, and it's specifically to bring human the, the human experience back into the workshop. Some people want like, "Oh, this this is BS. We were supposed to start at." 5, and it's 5.30, and we didn't start yet. And we would say to that, we started at 5. We started. the when many of you walked in, the workshop started. You signed in. You got something to eat. You started talking to folks. That's part of the workshop. Mm-hmm. Everything that's done in the workshop mm-hmm. is with intent. Mm-hmm. Um, so our day one is really about relationship building. Day two becomes a time when we go through kind of setting the tone, the standards, how we're going to move, and going into history. And day three becomes, for me, for lack of a better term, is a day of grief. Day three is always the grief day. And I think about often um, how the social workers who come into the work and who are facilitators talk about the stages of grief. And that's really what manifests Mm -hmm. throughout those two and a half days. Mm -hmm. There's a certain level of excitement. And then when the reality hits, there's a certain level of anger and sadness that comes along with understanding the history. And also with kind of reconciling where you fall into all of this history and how are you complicit in the work. Mm. And it's very, I think it's a very different experience depending on your identity when you show up to the group. Mm. I know for people of color, at least for myself, it's, um, it becomes a slow process initially because if you're a person of color, you're like, the hell am I doing at undoing racism training? I, I live this all day. I don't need someone telling me what racism is. But the first thing we gotta do is be clear. Cause a lot of us have misconceptions of what racism is, I think oftentimes we recognize that people name out the feelings that Mm -hmm. racism makes you feel, or um, they call out the sentiment, but not necessarily the manifestation. Mm -hmm. Versus for someone who might come in who's white, um, the experience is totally different. So as a woman of color in that space, it becomes one of two things. You either get really upset because you don't feel people are catching on fast enough, or you get upset <laughs> because, holy shit, I wasn't imagining this, and now the sadness, the anger <laughs> and sadness kind of are triggered and they go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. What about for you, Justin? What do you see?
1: I mean, just to talk about the intentionality of how the workshop was built, I would say do a part two and three next time you're with Ron and Kim just mm-hmm. to hear from folks that were there at the time. Because even um, mm. even people f- think that, it's a or people want a curriculum like put it into that box and it is a curriculum in a way but it was just much more organic uh barbara major cool black folks in community doing work because even like the picture of the foot id that gets put up that was like community meeting and then someone started drawing based Mm -hmm. on what people were saying Mm -hmm. like like what happened to this person so-and-so business no then remember they cut through i-10 cut through there and this that so i think so much of what seems like a great academic curriculum was very organic in nature um so i don't i wasn't there and i want to speak to to all of that um but i i don't know there's a difference even between i don't know the trainings I was in in 2005 and now and that white people are coming into the workshop with so much more information and having read so much more even I can't imagine the points that you know Maria and Kimberly and all those folks and Ron like and Dr. Mike and mm-hmm. we're all trying to make in 1980 because they were reading books that were not popularized mm-hmm. like I remember David Billing saying years ago like we deserve royalties from promoting a people's history of the United States before mm-hmm. before it got popular. Right, like, mm-hmm. you know, like, like we were telling everyone to read that. <laughs> like, yeah. like... Forget
2: Oprah's book yeah, club. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, so there's just so much information out there now. But I think <clears throat> what's been helpful to me with my relationship with the People's Institute is the eldership. And there's a difference between information and wisdom. You know, mm-hmm. like, so... Even, yeah, we want some like-minded people to have a race analysis. But then once we're together, we need some like-hearted people. I'm tired of egos playing out in organizing circles. Mm-hmm. You know, like, so, uh, and I think that's one of the things the Institute has brought is humanity, a lot of celebration. I was with Ron and Kim last week. You know, they're just still joyous doing the work. Like Ron has moved into kind of being a visionary in leadership a uh, person on the team and not the ed anymore and he's still just as excited at 78 sure right, you know like mm-hmm. so um what i notice in doing the workshop is how much i didn't even take care of myself in doing it for a while uh and how in the beginning of every training how much i need to remind myself to trust the process mm-hmm. you know um because the process is bigger than us because so many times you get an ego trip or something like that, taking people through a three-day thing. And people are like, you all are amazing. You And people say, you guys must work together all the time. I'm like, that's yeah. my first time working with mm-hmm. that person, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, But the process, when we all trust, like, mm-hmm. I remember one of our trainers, uh, Madi from Texas, was saying, like, there's so much information that's given in that two and a half days um, that you're really going to only... Obtain ten percent of it that's why people come six seven eight right. times you know right. but the ten percent you take is your hundred percent because that's what you remembered mm-hmm. you know so yeah. um and he also said, you know the opposite of of trust is not distrust it's control, so oftentimes how we try and facilitate if we're trying to control too much and not letting the process take form that's the way we get into problems when we're organizing in our circles locally
2: Mm -hmm. so
1: you know not passing around leadership not doing that you know Yeah. so I think they actually get a lot more out of even seeing a multiracial team function together like we actually care about each other Mm -hmm. Um, while not protecting one another like enabling one another holding each other to our highest selves it's not like oh they're just getting along it's a multiracial team they're talking about truth and you know like and they're calling each other in and out from time to time Mm -hmm. like in a healthy respectful way i think they get more out of just seeing that sometimes than even all the content because you can read any of that stuff and you know, like there's bibliographies and books and stuff, but
2: yeah, but it's the practice. Yeah. Like, I, I think for like, I think of um, my relationship with Kyle, for instance. Mm-hmm. So, Kyle is the person I organize with out in New Haven. Kyle and I are locked in co conspirators. We've been working together since 2016, but we didn't really become comfortable with each other to be honest with each mm-hmm. other until maybe last year. Mm-hmm. And that to me, in, a, in and of itself, is a true testament to what this process is we need to be able to hold like be in accountable relationships not one where i get to tell kyle everything he's doing wrong as a white man and he just has to sit there and be like you're absolutely right you know you do nothing wrong no it's it's a two-way street in fact we call each other in on things we and it, it becomes messy work so people who are looking for this work to be clean and oh, it's it's perfect. No, I think the messy stuff is the stuff that you grow from. Because in actuality, what I love about having a different team player that I'm working with is modeling that. Mm -hmm. The fact that people never know that we just met for the first time because we have an understanding. We have this analysis and we we have this covenant Mm -hmm. so that then when push comes to shove, if something doesn't feel right, we pull each other to the side and we debrief. How is this showing up? How is your IRO showing up on this? How am I showing up on this? Mm -hmm. And coming from a place of love, and it's not about being critical because we're trying to be perfectionist or we're trying to be the exceptional one. Mm -hmm. We we call all attention to those things and we're able to move through. So imagine, it becomes like such a liberating feeling to be able to be in true relationship with someone else in a way that this is not about us putting on a show, but us actually really holding each other in space. Mm -hmm. Like- I love my relationship with Justin. I think I've trained with Justin a lot over Mm -hmm. the last two years that I've been doing this work. Mm -hmm. And as such, it was a matter of fact, it was in Boston. We were here in January at the Federal Reserve. And I'm having an issue with a colleague of mine. And I love that my team was like, no, okay, we obviously need some space to unpack this. And as we were unpacking it, we were going deeper into what was the deep rooted issue, right? But the beauty of that is that if I had didn't have that relationship with Justin or Mary Flowers in that moment, I wouldn't have been able to receive what they were saying. Mm-hmm. And they were able to clearly like, see things from the balcony. Well, this is kind of playing out. What do you think of this? Mm-hmm. We don't ever have that. You know what I mean, like, yeah. no one is responsible. No one is guaranteed to tell you the truth. And this becomes a truth circle for us to actually grow from, to practice what it is to actually be in relationship with someone outside your race while still having the race conversation and it not being awkward. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: That was so powerful when you did that because it was so much about the intern. Because all the pain that you were feeling, I remember that Mary and I because obviously because you love this person so yeah, much. Yeah,
2: I was so you know? angry. Like, you well, you don't care
1: that much and bring that much energy mm-hmm. into something that, you know, someone bar-works. that you're organizing. I was like, with. oh my God, you're yeah. so right. But the piece of it also is is like, it can't like, w- the paternalistic part and the white part is like, in the service-oriented in our organizations, we only do that to community. Yeah, and we pretend like we're not getting like right. that's that's just a right. that's a messed up relationship. Like Absolutely. we got to do that with Addis that day because we know it might be us the next mm-hmm. day, You know, like and if we're not clear about that, that's that that's messed up. Yeah, you know, like
0: yeah, oh, just that holding space for people that yeah. that and holding that space in that room over those two and a half days, as
2: mm-hmm. you talked about, so. That is exactly what we are for lack of a better Holden's, term. Yeah. We are space holders mm. in those two and a half days. Mm. And I think um, one of the things we we need to do better at making time for is that when we become space holders, we end up, I know as me as an empath, I end up absorbing a lot of the energy in the room. Mm. And I have to be real cognizant of how I get rid of that energy afterwards. Cause there's a lot of pain that comes out mm. in those workshops. There's a lot of feelings, a lot of trauma that is shared And it's very, it could be very re-triggering for some of us. So Mm. to me, I feel like we're constantly in therapy when we're in that circle. Well, and it's a
1: balance too, because this is about organizing Mm -hmm. or it'll just be some experience. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like I remember doing European descent with white folks in New York and talking to Maurice Lacey, starting a men of color group years ago and stuff like that. And we thought we'd be able to come to organizing. And we said, wow, we got to spend just two or three years just relationship building before we can think about really doing some organizing. Mm. And, um, but it's the balance between having the feelings there and not just being tactical and skillful and too but also not letting that take up all the energy and space. Like, so we say oftentimes like the healing is in the organizing when Mm -hmm. you're doing stuff together in community and it's not therapy, but it's therapeutic, you know, like, so there we go. So how do we strike that balance? Um, And then sometimes like it's literally, which was so powerful in New York. um, I remember women of color collecting just a list of anti-racist clinicians and physicians and uh, women of color that other women of color could go to because a lot of them were coming looking for those services and organizing spaces and it's like you need a b and c so you can be healthy in the space with us so we can organize mm-hmm. together you know like
2: mm-hmm. yeah. you know and
1: let's not just send you to any doctor from the dominant culture that does it's it not going to understand yeah you. like so, so that's how big the network is. like we know even if they're not trainers we got some anti-racist physicians here yeah or some mm-hmm. anti-racist lawyers right. here some right. anti-racist you know carla from Haymarket yesterday mm-hmm. you know people mm-hmm. like doing good work in a no, field like philanthropy, my gosh. Like,
0: yeah. Like Yeah, that's right. Cause this is a lens an analysis needed across all
2: yeah.
0: people or mm-hmm. sectors, right? This is not just about nonprofits yeah. or yeah, not- social services. This is about every dimension. You know, we had a lot of people from to the design school in the room yesterday. Mm-hmm. Like have, yeah. in urban planning, let alone you know, architecture, design, mm-hmm. engineering, the every framework like there's the opportunity racism is going to be playing out sure. in every every framework. Uh, well we're so grateful you all were able to come um, yesterday and today and thank you for your work and your organizing and your truth telling and the truth telling you, you continue to do and um thank yeah, you we're for your really organizing. We know it took a lot mm-hmm. for you
1: to and Dr. Muhammad and everyone else to to make, make this happen. happen. Like I know there's a lot of pain from people's experiences of going through uh, what Dr. Kim would call the academization process mm-hmm. like, um, at any school. Yep. So people just need to f- have the space to vent and share that pain. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, get rid of like this false expectation we had that this school was going to do, you know, like mm-hmm. that any school could, like in a race constructed country that isn't trying to be anti racist, and even when mm-hmm. they are that is going to be messy, you know? So, yeah, so we know it wasn't easy and it took a lot of work and you're a student at the same time and you're an organizing at the same mm-hmm. time. And so
2: ah, kudos. Yeah. if anything, mm-hmm. my timeline has been buzzing since I've been, you know, posting about my time here. Like, why don't they bring this over to Yale? I'm like, uh, mm-hmm. talk to Harvard.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, nah, but okay. it's,
2: it's yeah. a, I've never seen a conference like this. Mm-hmm. Um, I look forward to seeing you guys grow mm-hmm. in this conference because there's definitely some room there for more.
0: Well, thank you both so much, and uh, we appreciate your time.